but as deep-rooted as is the game of baseball in our American way of life, there was a time when the idol was discovered to have feet of clay. In 1919, the World Series between the Chicago White Sox and the Cincinnati Redlegs astounded the sports world when a seemingly unbeatable Chicago team went down to ignominious defeat before the less highly regarded Redlegs. Hello, welcome to American Moments. This is Adam. And this is Matt. And today we are going to be talking some baseball. Yes, Black Sox. Well, well, actually we're talking about the White Sox. But, I know. But we're talking about not the White Sox we, we love today, but we're going to go way back in the time machine to the lovely year of 1919 where things went a little sideways for America's pastime. For those of you who've not heard of this, there was something called the Black Sox scandal where the White Sox... And kind of a comically, I mean, it, it, this was kind of like the bad news bears of crime, the way that they did it. But they threw the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds in 1919, and there was a lot of fallout that affects the supposedly. game. Supposedly. Yeah, supposedly. <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> okay, we'll say supposedly. <laughs> yeah. Even though, it's, even though there was a Absolutely. lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, they did it. Yeah, they did it. Uh, but uh, And it really affects the game as, as we see it today. So I guess to kind of get us started, we're going to go into you know what baseball looked like in 1919. Baseball had been around since 1869 as Major League Baseball. The game had been invented you know a few decades right. before that. But and there were independent leagues all over independent America. Independent leagues everywhere, different rules. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was the issue at the first World Series is agreeing on the types of rules. So you had you had the American League, you had the National League. In 1903, they had their first World Series. America was really a two-sport nation at that time. Baseball, and what do you think the other one was? Cricket. <laughs> no. <laughs> it wasn't football. Uh, it was boxing. Tonight, Jack Dempsey battles Jess Willard. 70,000 spectators pack around the ring in the blistering sunshine. The championship belt of gold and silk is paraded for all to see. Symbol of every heavyweight king from John L. to Willard himself. Gloves have been brought out now and fitted to their big boned hands. So most Americans were into boxing and, and baseball. You know, football was around, but it was kind of a, a one-off type of thing. Right. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people didn't really like it. And uh, there's people who thought it was a savage game. Uh, basketball really hadn't taken root yet. Baseball was the national pastime. Take me out to the ball game, sung by Edward Meeker, Edison Record. They have the, the first World Series in 1903, and baseball's becoming big money. World War One happens, and there was a ban on non-essential activities. There was one year where there was an abridged season, which led to the players getting salary cuts. But still, another thing about baseball, you have to look at entertainment back then. The the tracks, the racetracks were closed too, so you're not going to go, and when it's really hot and stuffy in the summer, um, a lot of people went, went to baseball just because they could go 
have a drink in the shade and instead of being inside, you know, at the theater or something like that. I mean, that that's really where entertainment really was at that point right? Uh, for, for a lot of people. So you could pay a nickel and go see the White Sox instead of going to the Yeah, play. it was a cheap entertainment, exactly. you know, the working yeah. man's sport. And the players made millions, right? Yeah, yeah. right. Absolutely. (laughs) So, I mean, something to keep in mind on that track, Adam, that those first 20 years, you know, from 1900 to 1920, 1925, baseball was known as the dead ball era. Okay. It was really a an era that was dominated by pitchers and low scoring, so you didn't necessarily have the stars that you did later on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I guess Babe Ruth is probably an exception, but he's such a big name because he was the only exception right, right. during that time. You know, the, to give you a little idea why it's called the dead ball era, there really was not a lot of scoring. It was really a pitcher's game, like I said. The baseballs back then cost a lot. I mean, they were the qu- equivalent of about $45 today per ball. That? I think because they were probably hand-stitched yeah, leather. Yeah, okay, that makes you know? sense, yeah. They were hand-wrapped, hand-stitched. Um, so they'd use balls for a long time, and as such, they'd become softer, and they wouldn't go as far. Mm-hmm. Pitchers also take balls and throw them certain ways to flatten certain areas of it so that they could get balls that would drop yeah. nice and easily. Well, they'd have spitballs, They also too. had spitballs, yeah. yep, yep, that made it very hard for a batter to hit it. Anyway, <laughs> there wasn't as much hitting. You know, the, the batters weren't as successful. There weren't as many home runs. There weren't as many star hitters, and that's... That's where a lot of the money is. I mean, well, I guess you look at baseball today and it's the pitchers Mm -hmm. and the hitters Mm -hmm. that make all the money. I was reading that the home run leader in 1900 and 1920 in Major League Baseball hit less than 20 home runs. Oh, wow. So super low. Anyway, you know, these were, I guess it it probably added to why it was the working man's sport. These guys didn't make a lot of money. Contracts in, in the Major League were were very low paying. They actually had a clause called the reserve clause in Major League Baseball, which basically said if a player refuses a contract from an owner, they can't go play for another owner. So yeah, they, these guys were indentured servants. Yeah, they were really at their mercy. Yeah. Yep. So enter the White Sox and their owner, Charles Comiskey. Charles Comiskey was notoriously cheap. He didn't treat his players well. He didn't pay them well. You know, a few great examples of this. When they won the pennant, their bonus was champagne. And from what I understand, it was flat champagne. Well, yeah, so they won the pennant, which yeah. which means winning your division, basically. Right. And, and this actually is in the movie. And, and we're going to get to Eight Men Out, which is a great movie, and it, it was one of the best mm-hmm. movies made about this. But there's a scene in there that goes into this. Um, there were other things he used to do. The Black Sox, is, as a nickname, becomes people associated with what happened with the, the ensuing scandal. Right. But they had the name before. Well, you know, he Kaminsky did not want to pay for cleaning of uniforms. Yes. And so the players, you know, they're not getting paid a lot, so they didn't clean their uniforms. So as the season progressed, those uniforms got dirty and dingy. They and got dirty and dingy. It sound like these guys don't make anything, but, I mean, at, by the standards of the day, they, yeah. they, they made a good wage, but not nothing on the level. The, 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 the real right. difference was the disparity of the income share between the owners and the players, right? So, so the, mm-hmm. the players were not getting what we would call a fair share of the spoils like they do today. Right, yeah. but agreed. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, they did not clean their uniforms every time they had a game. So they got dirty, and they started getting the nickname the Black Sox because of it. And you know what he did? To, so he said, I'm, I'll clean your uniforms, and he deducted it from their pay. Right. You know, there was a pitcher on the White Sox, Eddie Sicott. 
and he was one of the best pitchers in the league. And his contract at the time was 6K for the year, which was all right. Mm-hmm. But if he won 30 games, he got a $10,000 bonus. Um, so Comiskey actually sat him out at the end of the season so that he wouldn't get 30 wins. I think he kept him at 29 or 28. Yep. And so he didn't get that 10K. So he was notoriously cheap. Now, you know, he wasn't necessarily cheaper than any other owner. In fact, the White Sox had the largest payroll in Major League Baseball in uh, 1919. But Comiskey was cheap himself. Yeah, and there there, there was um, there was internal divisions on the White Absolutely. Sox. And, you know, there was kind of the straight-laced guys and the guys who didn't party. The clean Sox. And then there was the, the guys. I mean, these guys would go on the road. And you know they would just be boozing every night. Yeah, and, just debauchery. And, and it seemed like back then was a big. You know, we talked about prohibition, but that was that was a big boozing time in America, mm-hmm. even more so than today. So, kind of transitioning to include our gambling friends. You have the situation where these guys are just partying every night. They're you know raucous. They're not being reported on as much in the media as as you see today. But you know who else is following them is the gamblers. So the gamblers would just follow these right. guys around. To try to get a, an edge on a game or something. See who's see. really drunk yep. the ni- in the saloons the night before a game, and it really becomes a gambling culture. Mm-hmm. And it's not like these guys would just sit on the side and just watch these guys. They would start to engage and you know, buy them a drink. To, yeah, buy them a drink. You know, talk talk them up. Things Loosen like that. that. Yep. Exactly. So the gamblers, really, as I mentioned before, during World War One, had moved from the racetracks to the baseball stadiums because the racetracks were closed. All that gambling went towards baseball instead of the racetracks. That kind of gives you an idea of, you know, these guys are going are on trains every, you know, every day, going from city to city, and they're basically seeing these gamblers all the time. So there's almost, in some ways, a kinship. You know, there's obviously some people who want nothing to right. do with these guys, but, but there's somewhat of a kinship there with some of these guys. And there's guys like Abatel, for instance, who was a former featherweight boxing champ. And uh, they just kind of were always looking for an angle. We have to pause here and talk about Arnold Rothstein. And for those of us who don't know who Arnold Rothstein is, he is quite possibly one of the most successful gangsters. Uh, I, mean, I, don't know, I don't know if gangster is too harsh of a term. He kind of ran a, the Jewish yeah. organized crime syndicate. He was a gambler. He had racetracks before prohibition he ran private card games Mm -hmm. um he had muscle so his big thing was you know he would go to the same restaurant every night and this is in new york sorry i should have mentioned that so so he he was headquartered in new york he consorted with lucky luciano uh you know some of the some of the other big wigs you know that we talked about in in our um, prohibition episode with the saint valentine's day massacre same same time frame yeah i mean he was you're right he was a kingpin but he was smart like he looked for opportunity yeah Hey, always look for an angle. His favorite thing was loaning out money, and he would always, and this is going to be part of the problem, is he would always collect very efficiently, but pay inefficiently. So he looked at giving people money right away as money that could be tied up. It sounds like the IRS to me. So he was famous for fixing horse races. He owned a track. He owned up in Saratoga Springs, New York, was a very popular area to, to vacation back then. And he would find horses, bribe the jockeys. He would get all kinds of intel. His big thing was intelligence. So he would pay for anything he could mm-hmm. find out about what was going on. Well, didn't he hire? I mean, didn't he hire these guys to go hang out with the baseball players? Yeah. Well, allegedly, mm-hmm. right? So, so I've heard multiple. It's all allegedly. Well, well we got to make a plug here. So, what, in doing research for this, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Dave Petruja who 
has written two books about this, uh, one called Rothstein and one about uh, the baseball commissioner, you know, Mountain Kinesaw Landis. So I, we were able to talk with him, and he gave us a lot of a lot of background on this that was just fascinating. In, in preparation for this, we read the book Rothstein, which is just a, a fascinating book. I, I would I would check it out big time. This guy was always looking for an angle, and he finally got sick of Saratoga and kind of came back to New York to focus on prohibition area activities. He really became, after this whole scandal, really spearheaded the illegal liquor trade, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, focusing on the higher end customer instead of, you know, cutting it up and just selling swill to everybody. So have you seen Boardwalk Empire? I've seen a couple of them. Yeah. So the guy who plays Arnold Rothstein, Michael Stuhlbarg, it actually does a really good job of kind of capturing his his essence a little bit, just the, the, the even-tempered, always looking for an angle, you know, type of guy that he was. Yeah. It's the age of information, and the businessman lives and sometimes dies on its value. Do you know why I'm a successful gambler, Mr. Doyle? Because you're lucky? He's lucky. I create my luck. I'm a successful gambler because I never bet on an event whose outcome I'm not sure of in advance. The bottom line is, if there was a fix, if there was an angle of anything, if, if he could make a nickel by mm-hmm. selling milk to his mother, he would do it, right? I'm not sure what I meant by that, but <laughs> let's just roll with it. So he uh, I mentioned there's this animosity between the owners and the players, especially Comiskey, because Comiskey was especially dislikable as a person. Right. And there's this is not the first time this has happened. There's been a lot of allegations about other games being fixed, being thrown, and there's, there's probably a lot we don't know about. Mm-hmm. You know, we only know about the ones that got caught. But a, there's a uh, the ringleader for the White Sox is a gentleman by the name of Chick Gandel, who was the first baseman. And so there's all these rumors about the ability to Chick's talking big about sounding mm-hmm. people out, sounding out with his gambling community about the ability to to do a fix in the movie and a lot. And, and there's multiple schools of thought on this, but in the movie, it kind of looks like. Eddie Seacott, the pitcher you're talking about, was kind of a reluctant partner in this, but he really was kind of a key part of it. Right. And there had been rumors that the 1914 World Series had been had been fixed, but word makes it to Arnold Rothstein that the, the players are in play. Yeah, you're right. Chick Gandel really saw the opportunity here to try to make some money by throwing the game. And and as you said, Arnold Rothstein was a master of seeing where there's opportunity. The way he sets it up is, the way Rothstein starts it up is with some plausible deniability, right? Mm-hmm. So people were coming to him with this idea to, to fix a series because the mechanics of a fix is everyone focuses on what was paid to the players, but you need to also have the bankroll to make the bets to profit on it, right? Mm-hmm. And making it more complicated He's such a big part of a gambling syndicate. Like all these things I talked about before with throwing horse races, things like that. He can't make these bets himself because that will send the, the odds will come down and not be as, as advantageous. So going into the World Series, for example, the Reds were a big underdog, which made it target to fix the series. Yeah, the Sox had won two years earlier. They were the best team in Major League Baseball. So to pull something off like this, it, you need someone with bankroll in order to, to do this. So they, they wanted 100000 for the players but they needed a lot more for for bets as well so arnold gets uh gets approached several times about this and then he he makes kind of a scene and a lot of people think that this was done on purpose so he has some plausible deniability if you look at the grand jury testimony he 
always calls back to this. So two guys come, and I forget which ones, but, but they, they come to him and, and uh, you know, say, hey, I, I want you to, to get in on this fix. And he makes sure, he looks around, makes sure everyone's looking at him. He starts screaming at him about not wanting to besmirch the national pastime and, <laughs> and how dare you, I'm a legitimate businessman. Right. Overacts it, right? Oversells it, right? So to the point where everyone was like, okay, that, that was really weird. So that's his first step. And he can kind of dishonestly, honestly say he had nothing to do with it. Because all his schemes, he had intermediaries. The actual person who interacted with the team was a gentleman by the name of Abe Attell, who I mentioned before, mm-hmm. who was a, uh, used to be a featherweight champion, uh, boxing champion. And he, w- he worked with Chick Gandel and came up with this scheme where they would pay them $100,000. And Eddie Seacott insisted that he got his 10000 up front. The other players would get somewhere between five dollars and $10,000 depending on how things went in the series. So Rothstein, allegedly, but pretty sure, bankrolls this guy named Abe Attell, mm-hmm. and he has two other gentlemen helping them as well. So the, the gentlemen who were in on the fix were... Chick Gamble, uh, obviously. Yeah, Chick. So he was, he was the go-between, and basically they, they were supposed to get money at, at predetermined times from the gamblers. And so he, he was the one who, who kind of was in the, in the middle. Eddie Seacott was a pitcher. Mm-hmm. We, we mentioned him already. He was the only one who really got his money. Oscar Happy Felch, yeah. Yeah. center fielder yeah. there. And why are the pitchers so important? Because if you, if you don't know baseball, a left fielder is not going to throw the game really well for you. Well, and remember, we're in the, we're in the dead ball mm-hmm. area here where it's a complete pitcher's game. So the pitchers mm-hmm. are very important. Yeah, they're very important. Oscar Happy, Happy Felch, we don't really know him too well. Shoeless Joe Jackson, he was a star outfielder. He was. Yeah, I mean, he, he was really good, and we'll, we'll get more into mm-hmm. the aftermath of him um, at, at later on. Fred McMullen, he, this guy was kind of just a utility infielder who just heard about it, so, which means he doesn't really play. He's right. not a starter, right? So they just plug him in. He wasn't even going to play, and basically they had to let him in so, he wouldn't, so he'd shut up. So he was in on it. Yeah, uh, didn't he overhear them actually yeah, he talking overheard about it? Yeah, he just said, I want in, and yep. they were like, oh, crap, we got to let him in yeah. now. And then Charles Risberg was a shortstop. Buck and, Weaver. And Buck Weaver. The, the two people that are most focused on this story are Buck Weaver and Joe Jackson, which we'll, we'll get into in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, Lefty Williams is also an important. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, you'll get into it a little bit more, but he, mm-hmm. he holds a major league record. <laughs> Not a good one. Not a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's someone else who went 0-3, but he was a reliever. Right. Yeah. For, for those who don't know how baseball works, there's whoever is the pitcher of record when, when the other team goes up and gets their final score, right. they, are, they have the loss. Uh, but these guys were, were great pitchers. Lefty Williams was a great pitcher. Eddie Seacott was a great pitcher. So he had two starters. Lefty Williams was going to get three starts. This was I think this was the one year, I'm not sure, that they were going to have a nine-game series. Today the World Series is a seven-game series. I mean... Can you imagine a nine-game series today? I mean, everyone would lose their mind. But it was it was long. So you have yeah. pitch. I think Eddie Seacott had two starts. Lefty had three. So you have yeah. uh, rigged pitchers who were willing to throw it, and it lined up yeah. for over half the games. So all eight of these guys are in, right? And they've agreed to throw the game. Well, they're not all eight are in. So so you have jo- Joe Jackson is a fascinating character because he didn't know how to read. Um, he was a fantastic ball player, but everyone kind of looked down on him a little bit and really kind of said, well, you're not, you're not going to be dumb, are you? You mm-hmm. know, Are you going to turn down five grand? Got bullied into yeah, it. Yeah, he majorly got bullied into it. Yeah, But um, nevertheless, he was part of it. He was part of it. 
And then uh, Buck Weaver, it, he didn't agree to take the money. But more importantly, and we'll get into this later, he didn't uh, turn his teammates in. And he just didn't want to be a rat for his buddies. Yeah. Uh, so he played. He actually played great in the series. So what, what you, you've got these eight guys in, and you've got Arnold Rothstein backing it. So the way it's going to work is Seacott's uh, going to get his money before the first game, you know, before he throws the first pitch. Right. And, and then these guys are going to start getting money at predetermined times. And then Rothstein, who has agreed to bankroll, he kind of looked at it as, I just provide financing to people who are in schemes, and if I happen to make money on it on the side by having you know money on bets, then good mm-hmm. for me. So the the fix is in. The players had a meeting at the Ansonia Hotel where they decided uh, you know the, what was going to go who what was going to go on in chicks in chicks in chicks room in chicks room yeah. And and what was at stake here? So they were supposed to get you know five grand uh, you know so five grand today would be about sixty eight thousand dollars. Right, mm-hmm. so I can't imagine a, a major league baseball player throwing a game for sixty-eight thousand dollars today. Um, just to give it some reference, yeah. if they won the World Series, they would get a fifteen hundred dollar bonus. Yeah, yeah. So five thousand was almost three times that. Well, and you gotta wonder if if Seacott insisted on ten k because that was the same number Comiskey stuck. Ah, oh, I didn't even think yeah, of that. Yeah, that yeah, could be that, it. That's that's kind of funny. Anyway, so. The way you followed baseball games back then, if you wanted to follow them live and not just read about them in the you know paper the next day, was you went to one of these t- ticker tape lounges where you'd sit around and, and you'd have a guy, they'd have a big room where they'd, they'd have representation of what the huh. what was going on on the field, like how many runners are on base, things like that. And the fix was supposed to be in if Eddie Seacott being the first batter. Yep. Um, so when, the, when they're playing against the Reds, that's how Abatel and and I, some people say Rothstein knew when Seacott being the first batter, and he just got lit up in in that first inning, and and they lost the first game nine nine two right yes nine two which was a for a dead ball error that's a big that's yeah, a big number especially yeah. for a team that was the dominant team yeah yeah okay so after the game one they they were supposed to get some of their money. But guess what? The, Didn't show up. The, the <laughs> cheaters were getting cheated. The reason is, is Abatel and, and his cronies are taking the money that they're supposed to be paying the players and betting it, right? So so instead of having half the money for the players and half the, the money for for bets, they're using all the money for the bets. Yeah, Sukkot looks like the smart one here, right? Yeah, he really does. He really does. And, and there were other times, future, where they'll, they'll have to cave and give them so many. And Chick ended up keeping it for himself and not giving it to the players. <laughs> but, yeah, that guy just was, was terrible. But, but anyway, so after the first game, they're not, they're not getting their money, but they're still go, agreeing to go along with the plot. Uh, and the second start is Lefty Williams. He gets roughed up. It's not as bad this time. And yeah. it was. I think the first game was 9-1, not 9-2. Was it? Yeah, but, you know, we're split hairs. It's still a blowout. Yeah. So they lost the second game 4-2. And, I mean, the rumor is, right, that at this point they're not necessarily trying to lose, right, because they didn't get paid? Well, so there were rumors. Even Everyone knew the rumors, right? So it, and, and we'll get to this in a second, but there was rumors even before the series that the series was not on the level. And uh, after game two, Rayshaw was the was the actual catcher for the for the Sox, and Lefty crossed a signal, which means that that they agreed to a signal, and he threw something different, mm-hmm. and and then he was getting roughed up at the same time, and he had never crossed a signal on him all year, yeah. and so he told Kit Gleason, who was the manager. Uh, Ray Shaw went to him and says and said, "Look, I think there's something going on here because he crossed right. the signal on me." And what's important there is earlier we had talked about the two divisions of the White Sox. Mm-hmm. 
and Ray was part of that clean socks group, mm-hmm. you know, the, the group that was more straight-laced. Maybe they were few of them were more college educated, yeah. you know, and they just didn't play the same way. The, the guy who plays him in the movie is hysterical. He's like cussing at the, he's cussing at his pitchers. He's cussing at the team. Yeah, he's basically putting the team on his back. He was, <laughs> he was great. So Kick Leeson goes to Comiskey in his hotel room and tells him he thinks something's up. And uh, Comiskey goes to to the president of the American League and and, and says something and and basically. They rip the pitchers and a new one, and mm-hmm. and uh, there's not a lot of trust. And they don't suspend him. I mean, mm-hmm. it's an important note, right? right? There's right. no such thing as a commissioner at this point. So all the player decisions are based on the owner, yeah. the team owner. Yeah. And Comiskey is not going to get rid of him because he wants his team. Yeah. He wants his star players to be in. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of my favorite guys in the story who wasn't in on the fix was a guy named Dickie Kerr, and he was the, the rookie <laughs> who, game three, he, he decides that he's not in on it, and he, yeah. he pitches a shutout and wins, wins the third game, 3 to nothing. So at this point, we, you had good pitching from Kerr, but really at, those, at this point, this is when the fix is kind of starting to come apart because mm-hmm. the players are getting stiffed. It's a 2-1 series right now. Yeah, yeah, well, and, they're, and the players going into game three, yep. the players were – Fine, we're not getting our money. We're getting stiffed. Screw it. You know. So they decided to went to win a game. Kerr played his his mind out. So they're heading into game four. Yeah. So they're heading into game four. And guess who's pitching game four? I'm gonna go Sikot. Sikot. Yeah. So Sikot was was the starter for game four, and he was really. <laughs> so he uh, he decides he doesn't want to look quite as bad as he did in the first in the first yeah. game. So he pitches better than he did, and he ends up losing the game two nothing. It's not as egregious as it was. It was only five. It was only five hits, but it was still a thrown game. After this game, some of the money came in, and uh, Lefty was coming up. So they, Gandel made sure that he got some of his money. But one of the guys, uh, Sports Sullivan, came through with some money. They're not really sure if Rostin mm-hmm. gave it gave them more or what the deal was, uh, but the idea was they they just kept putting these players off, putting these players off, which is really dumb, yeah. right? They really kind of screwed up their own fix. So the series is three one going into game five, and Lefty is pitching. So that this game was uh, it, they started out Lefty started out okay, but kind of came apart. There were some fielding errors in this one too that really kind of contributed. They lose. Five to nothing at this point. So it's they're down four to one. Right. Going into game six. Which is an and this is a nine game series. Nine game series, yeah. So so game six, get the series goes to Cincinnati and a lot of the guys are checking out because they're they're not getting their money. We you had uh, Dickie Kerr again on the mound and he he plays really well. And actually Chick Gandel drove in Buck Weaver for the game-winning run in uh, in this game, so they end up winning five to four. Obviously, money's yeah. not uh, money's not working. Obviously, so so they're, the the guys are starting to win games again, and a lot of them are just getting sick of it, um, and they they want nothing to do with it. Now, there's some people who think that they had some noble vision of the game and they didn't want to taint it. At the end of the day, the the cheaters were getting cheated, so they were like, we're we're out. And the best way to exonerate yourself from being in on a World Series fix, some of them started looking at, was to win the World Series. Right. So Game Seven, four uh, two series. Yeah, Seacott was supposed to start again, mm-hmm. and Kit knew something was going on. Kit, the manager, um, knew something was going on with Seacott and almost sat him down, but he didn't. He he played a lot better, and they ended up winning four to one. So Eddie Seacott wins, and the Gamblers are starting to get worried. They know that you know they've been giving them money, and then I've read multiple different accounts of this 
When Seacott won, apparently that's when the gamblers decided to revert to force. Sporty Sullivan was one of the guys working with the players um, with Abe's Hell. Sure. Um, and he apparently, and, and there's this is discounted by other people, but it's generally, and, and David Petruja again, you know, has this in his book, told Lefty, who was supposed to start game eight, that if you don't lose the game in the first inning, your wife's dead. So at that point, we're not just talking money anymore. Right. We're talking blood. And, and Lefty's 0-2 at this point. So he's, he's blown both of his starts. So the, the gamblers are worried that the Sox are going to come back and win the series. A lot of the guys weren't really – the smart money was just betting on the series and not the individual games. Mm-hmm. You know, So a lot of the, the big bets were on the whole series. So when guys like Rothstein realized that that, that was all possibly going to come apart – Step up the game. Yeah, they they put the the screws to him. Well, the good news is Lefty loves his wife. (laughs) And and Trudeau. Silver lining. Yeah, yeah, silver lining. The man loved his wife. And boy, he he gave up four runs in the first inning. And he got destroyed. Yeah. Basically, picture a guy going up there. Put yourself in a situation. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, at the beginning of this fix, it seems so like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get paid, blah blah blah. And he's he has to be so sure that he appeases the gamblers. Like he's, I heard it was just like it was so obvious. Like I read some accounts that was just so obvious at this point when you saw lefty pitch in the game eight that he was just throwing these really mild, you know, playing catch, just like so these guys could knock it out of the park. Got relieved at the end of the first inning. Yeah, I was going to ask. I wonder why he didn't get relieved earlier. Well, yeah, it was the, the first inning, and then he got he got pulled. Yep. Jackson also in game eight hit his only homer in in the series. Huh. Shoeless. Uh, yeah, shoeless. Shoeless yeah. Joe. The game ended up as ten to five. So the the five is the interesting and the controversial thing because it's obvious that some of the players had checked sure. out, and you know maybe Lefty was the only one who got threatened. So yeah. the other guys were still just trying, right? So, and we'll get to it in a bit. But Joe Shoeless Joe is romanticized as part of this. But mm-hmm. really, the only games he really did well in were games he was trying to win. Right. There, there's, I mean, he had a high batting average, but there's a lot of fielding errors. The, the games they were really trying to throw, he played horrible in. So they lose. They lose. The, the series is over. You'll we'll never know how much That's Rothstein what... made on this. Yeah. Right? But David um, says that he probably thinks he made somewhere like three hundred thousand dollars. That sounds like a lot. But a so a gambling fix, like so a horse race that that he would fix. Maybe he'd invest ten grand and he'd walk away with three hundred, mm-hmm. right? So in this case, he's invested two hundred at least, and then gets three hundred out of it. Yep. So that's not really good odds by Rothstein standards. This is not a very successful. And not only that, once he goes and has to pay all the lawyer fees and. And pay right. his cronies. It, um, it's, it really wasn't worth his time. So the Reds win. You know that's the end of the season. Nothing comes of it. One year later, you know these rumors that you had mentioned had, that had started during the series are still persisting. These rumors are strongly suggesting that certain players threw the game and allowed the Reds to win. I mean, it, you even mentioned it in the last game. Lefty Williams was obviously throwing the game. Mm-hmm. You know these rumors persisted, and in the fall of 1920. There was a grand jury that had convened to look into a different game, right, Adam? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a there was a, a gambler in Philadelphia, Billy Mahart, who was part of the scheme. You know, as far as far as bankrolling and and uh, you know getting money together and, and placing bets, because again, Rothstein has to employ other people to place his bets. He can't do it, or else the odds are going to swing. Well, he gets gets pinched for you know helping to fix a, a, a different game, right? And 
starts talking about the whole thing and it, with 1919. And they already have this grand jury convened, so they say, why don't we go out and look at this too? So anyway, the grand jury is now looking at the World Series from the year before. Mm-hmm. And they start reaching out to these players. And Seacott, that guy, you know, the guy who got paid, starts to freak out, gets worried, and he confesses to the grand jury with the promise of immunity. Well, and, the, and again, Seacott, if, when you watch Eight Men Out, you got to keep this in mind yeah. because he was actually part of, he was one of the ringleaders. He, he absolutely he, was. He wasn't this silent pitcher that was a great family man. He was a mastermind behind yeah. it. He is the only one that got paid up front, and he's the one that squealed first. And you know what's funny is he wasn't the party guy. He was part of the straight lace faction on the team, but he was the one who squealed first, to your point. Shortly after, shoeless Joe Jackson, who we'll talk about more, also confesses mm-hmm. to the grand jury. So these are signed confessions to the grand jury. So after that... And they uh, filed them in a really safe place, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, after that, Comiskey really has no choice but to suspend the seven players that are still on his team. The eighth player, Gandal, was no longer in the pros. Well, well the funny thing about this is Comiskey knew after the series. He, he knew everything. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, but does he want to kill the golden goose? So what he does is he hires these private investigators to follow his players around, mm-hmm. the, the eight in the series, and you know figure out what are they spending their money on, how much, you know, because he didn't know how much money they really had. So his perception was, these guys are dirty, but they're my star players. Let's keep this Let's mom keep there. And, and keep making the money. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, he was forced at that point to suspend them. Um, one month later, all eight players were indicted. And I guess to add insult to injury for Comiskey, um, the remaining 10 players on the team were then given $1,500 bonuses, um, the amount that they would have gotten if they would have won the World Series. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And the thought there was, hey, thanks for not getting in on the – so maybe he wasn't as bad of guys, you know. Yeah, who knows if he was forced yeah. to or not, but yeah. he did it. Um, so these eight these eight guys are indicted. The next summer, the trial begins, mm-hmm. 1921. But in the meantime, <laughs> before the trial begins, somehow these signed confessions from Seacott and Jackson disappear. Nobody can find them. Years later, they found those confessions in the possession of Comiskey's attorney. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh wow! So, just an interesting wow side note there. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, so there was again. Jackson got bullied a lot, right? There's a whole bunch of effort to rehabilitate his image, and there's 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 some people who say that Comiskey railroaded him into mm-hmm. into making this confession, basically saying, if you say you cheated, this will all go away. And you know, obviously, they didn't know at this time that they were going to get banned. So maybe he'll get a, a slap on the wrist, and and he'll be able to go. And basically, he said, "This is your lawyer too." You know, who's Comiskey's lawyer? When Comiskey's really just looking out for Comiskey, right? right? Um, so uh, Jackson signs it by making his mark. Uh, yeah, actually, like so he was he was illiterate because he's illiterate. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So the the trial goes forward without the signed confessions. Mm-hmm. All the players did. All the players deny it. Um, well, I mean, they ended up denying it, but but really, what the jury really got helped out by the judge by the fact that he insisted that prosecutors had to prove that they were looking to defraud Major League Baseball as part of the instructions. As you know, because when you get your yeah. your juror instructions, they it wasn't just that they had to prove that they cheated; that they had intent to to prove Major League Baseball. Right. And the jury, they don't want to be the people who throw stars in jail in America's national Absolutely. pastime. So I heard a, 
you know, said that they kind of got a pass, right? You know, by give, being well, given, given these extra instructions. I mean, the, the jury deliberated for less than three hours. Yeah, and they returned not guilty verdicts for everybody. Yeah. So yeah. it turns out they didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so Adam, what what uh, what was the aftermath of this? In my opinion, the real story is starting now. So there was a gentleman uh, who was a judge, and he was, he was a trust buster. Uh, his name was Kenesaw Mountain Landis, which is probably the best name Fantastic. I've ever heard. Great, great American, right? I, I mean, just kind of a stubborn, stubborn guy. So we need to restore public confidence in the game. Decision. The man selected was Judge Kenesaw Mountain Landis. His strict but fair record as a U.S. Circuit Court judge had caught their eye. Here was their man, they felt. The owner's analysis of Landis spoke well for their judgment. The new commissioner laid down the law in no uncertain terms. The entire nation knew that any offenders in the national pastime from that time forth would be dealt with severely and impersonally. He single-handedly preserved the game in its darkest hour. Back then, there was a president of the American League and there was a president of the National League. And there were three owners, um, the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the White Sox, who hated a guy by the name of Van Johnson, at, who was the president of the American League. And kind of as, as a, uh, a jab at his authority, Comiskey and, and uh, Van Johnson absolutely hated each other. So he wanted someone that could usurp his authority. So they decide to offer Kenesaw the commissionership of baseball. So that so Comiskey and these and these owners are thinking, okay, great, we'll just have a single guy in charge. And he made some conditions. And he said, if I'm going to take this job, I need to basically have it for life. Can't Absolute control. Absolute control. He could, he could not be removed. Right. And it, that's, that sounds great, but he had, the reason he was picked was because he absolutely loved the He loved baseball. He was disgusted by this. There's another book that uh, David Petruja wrote about Landis that was absolutely amazing as well. This guy was, he served as a commissioner until, I think, 1944. 25 years. Yeah, exactly. So the White Sox think that they've gotten away with murder, mm -hmm. and he bans them all for life from the game. Pete Rose is their ass. <laughs> yeah, Pete Rose is now an action verb. He, he, bans, he bans the ones that cheated, and he bans Buck Weaver. So his statement was, Regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a game, no player who sits in conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a ball game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever play professional baseball again. Those are pretty strong <laughs> words. Very strong words. And you, you really get the sense that this was not something he was doing for political. I mean, this was for the, was for love of the game. Exactly, exactly. He bans them all. And on a side note, one of the, the guys from the other teams, the Browns, found out about it, came and tried to get the reward money from Comiskey because Comiskey was offering all kinds of award money, you know, for evidence. Yeah. And they're like, uh, we're not giving you the war money, and you're getting banned for baseball as well. <laughs> so, so yeah. basically, he'd known about it, and for the same reasons, Weaver, you know, that he didn't say anything, and he came out and tried right. to profit from it, so he got banned as well. Everyone who was thrown out. So, we'll, we'll, let's talk about the romanticizing of of the players. Yep. Right. Shoeless Joe Jackson. When you hear Field of Dreams. Costner's talking to his daughter about how he had the greatest batting average in the series. 
I mean, if he's supposed to be throwing, how do you explain the fact that he hit 375 for the series and didn't commit one error? Huh? I can't. 12 hits, including the series' only home run. He said he's trying to lose. It's ridiculous. The commissioner of baseball suspended eight of the players, including the great shoeless Joe Jackson, for life. What? Suspend? Means they never let him play the game again. But again, like I mentioned before, when the games that the Sox were trying to throw, he played horribly. Okay, and he wasn't banned for taking money. He was well. I mean, he was banned for taking money, but what he got banned for, he absolutely did. Right. And the same with Buck Weaver. So, and and the most important banning, you know, according to to David Petruja, was Buck Weaver because even if you don't take the money. It's not good enough just to be quiet. You have to come forth. So he credits that with cleaning the game up a lot better because you had a conspiracy of eight guys and a scandal, and you don't know if ever everyone's going to keep their mouth shut. Right. So you don't want to. They call it. You didn't want to get Buck Weavered. You know. After that, <laughs> so that he credits that suspension with being the most important one. So our first commissioner was a great one. He banned not only the players actually tried to start a barnstorming mm-hmm. uh, league where they would go and, and play games themselves. And he said, and he told any players in Major League Baseball, if they even consorted or played with these guys in exhibition games, they would be banned from Major League Baseball as well. You know what was interesting about this too, Adam? Under his guidance also, baseball became even more popular than it was. There was a little dip right after the scandal in popularity, but it really took off under him. And it really set the stage as America's game. You know, his integrity really was felt throughout the league and, and permeated out as part of what Major League Baseball was known for. Yeah, and, and not only did he, it wasn't like he just was a hard ass. He would, he reformed the farm system, mm-hmm. and it, he, was, he was a good advocate for the players. The, there was a Mexican league that was starting up as well that he, he let the player go to go find employment there. And, that, and that, was, that was a big deal because, remember, as you were saying, the players were indentured servants. He said, no, you can go if you want. And the, and the Mexican League turned out to be a disaster and yeah. ended up coming back hat in hand. But And obviously, Major League Baseball didn't really get to where we, we see it until the late 1900s with, with the abilities that the, the players get the latitude to do what they want now. Right. But this guy really was the right commissioner at the right time. Absolutely. Well, but the White Sox completely fell apart. They did. Just, they didn't win another World Series until 2005. Mm-hmm. Yep. So everyone talks about the curse of the Cubs. Right. The, the, the White Sox have a curse. Man, Chicago's just a cursed place. I tell you. Yeah. They don't really, I mean, they were gutted. So mm-hmm. so imagine taking, you know, all the good players from your team. And it's not like you can go address this in free agency for the issues right. that we just talked about. Absolutely. And, you know, they got acquitted. All these eight players got acquitted. But but really the, the rest of their lives was kind of their punishment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very very true. I mean, that, that was... You look at Chick, and he was banned for life. Mm-hmm. He tried to start up another league called the Frontier League in oh, yeah. Arizona. Some of, the, some of the people that he had played with them, Fred McMullen, mm-hmm. Joe Jackson, Swede Risberg, and then Joe Gideon, who was another... He wasn't one of the eight, but he was also penalized and knew about it in this league. Mm-hmm. You know, the league didn't work out really well. Buck Weaver was one of the team managers, mm-hmm. and the rumor is he had him banned from the league in 1927 as retaliation. Oh, really? Because he didn't he didn't support them during the trial. Oh, wow. He finished in this league where he didn't really make money. The league didn't take mm-hmm. off. He ended up becoming a plumber in Southern California, where he was from. You know, didn't make a lot of money. He died in a convalescent hospital 
of heart failure. What's that mean? A convalescent hospital is like a hospital for the indigent. Okay, got it. All right. And he died of heart disease and emphysema. Wow, okay. Eddie Seacott, you know, after he was banned from baseball, he moved back to where he was from, Michigan. He managed a gas station, was a game warden. He was a strawberry farmer when he ended up um, passing away in 1969. But again, I mean, and then a lot of this, foc- a lot of the aftermath focuses around Joe Jackson. And uh, again, it, it, he's romanticized. He he had a great he had a great batting average, but he was in on the fix. So it's mm-hmm. you know it, whether he got bullied a little bit, yeah, for sure. But um, but it, it is he did do what he was banned for. You know, and the same with Buck. I was reading this quote from Shoeless Joe. Did you ever read that mm-hmm. with Ty Cobb? Mm-hmm. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, well, so Joe Jackson opened a liquor store in Greenville, South Carolina, mm-hmm. where he's from. Again, they weren't convicted, but it followed them their whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a there's a famous quote from when uh, Shoeless Joe met Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb entered his liquor store. Um, and Jackson didn't show any signs of knowing who he was. Ty Cobb was mm-hmm. very Ty famous. Cobb. He was Ty Cobb. And he was a character himself. Yeah. yeah. And so after making his purchase, he turned to, to Jackson and said, Don't you know me, Joe? Jackson replied, thinking, You should know me. And Jackson said, Sure, I know you, Ty, but I wasn't sure you wanted to know me. A lot of them don't. Mm-hmm. You know, it just shows what followed them. We didn't get into the the depths of the organized crime. The, Absolutely the, not. But, but really, uh, the organized yeah. crime figures really took it on the nose for this, too. I, I like to compare this. So I mentioned earlier, boxing and uh, baseball were, were the two American sports at the time. This was a crossroads for both of them. Baseball went one way and boxing went the other. Right. right? So baseball became cleaner. And, you know, there's still scandals, you know, in baseball. Of course, there's the steroid scandal later, things like that. But the integrity of the game hasn't really been questioned, Mm -hmm. right? Boxing, I mean, two words, Don King, right? But that's the way boxing went. They kind of crossed where, you know, baseball went up and boxing went down at that point. And I, I, I would argue maybe boxing still hasn't recovered, you know? Agreed. Yeah. You know, and you can look at... Baseball's changed now than it was then. Also, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you mentioned all the the steroid controversies of the late '90s, or sorry, of the the 2000s. You mentioned even '90s, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess '90s too. And there's been hardly anybody that's been that was banned from baseball. Well, and at the end of the day, we talked about the the income sharing, right? And the, the disparities aren't there anymore, right? So you have right. the the owners are making a lot of money, but you know what? The base now now we have the joke that the billionaires yeah. are fighting with millionaires when when they're having labor, labor peace. To put it in perspective, it, it would be like saying that it, with, with the income disparities back then, it would be like the millionaires fighting with the nickels mm-hmm. and dimes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, this is just a fascinating story. So I mean, obviously the the film uh, watching list from this. Eight Men Out is is pretty accurate. You know, I, yep. I think it's pretty true to, to the story. Um, again, they make Eddie Seacott look a bit more you know innocent than he is. But you know, you every it's funny. Shoeless Joe affects every every movie. You know, you get Field of Dreams is about this. Um, you right. Know, even the, in the Natural, which is a fiction, but uh, you know they, they talk about it. And then you know even in The Godfather Part Two, you know Hyman Roth says you know he, he loves baseball when Arnold Rothstein fixed the World Series. You know it's just it's so ingrained in our culture, even outside of it just being our national pastime. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, and I, again, I wanted to uh, to give a big thanks to David Petruja, who wrote the books Rothstein and Landis about the the commissioner of baseball. 
one of our favorite historical figures, he just wrote another book about called TR's Last War. And uh, that's going to be released here pretty soon. And it's about his campaign to win back the Republican Party. So awesome. look for that. Anyway, uh, if you want to help us out, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you do, let me know, and I'll send you a gift card for anything you want. Anything you want? Well, maybe not anything. I'll send you a gift card for whatever makes you happy. All right, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks so much. Sucks, but he never wore no shoes.